You're listening to Christ-Centered Preaching, Preparation and Delivery of Sermons, Lesson 13. These online lectures and study guides have been created to provide listeners all over the world the opportunity to receive theological resources online for free. If you are benefiting from these worldwide classroom lectures, please consider supporting this free ministry. Click on the Give Now button on our homepage, worldwide-classroom.com. Thank you very much for your support. What are three stages of preparing explanation? Well, do you remember that? It's old IV guys here. Observation, interrogation, restatement. Observation, interrogation, restatement. That is in preparing the explanation. Those are stages that we typically go through. Observation, just saying, what's here? Interrogation, what's it mean? So what's here? What's it mean? And then restatement, how can I best communicate it? Observation, interrogation, restatement. Now, that's somewhat different than the next question. What are three stages of presenting explanation in a typical main point? That is, as you're actually presenting that material, how do you typically work? And this is real simple. Again, I'm hoping you're starting to listen to pastors do it. It is state. What comes next? State, place, prove. State, place, prove. And uh, for us, I will tell you what usually happens is it's the place that gets forgotten. We state a truth, and then we begin explaining things out of the text or out of our doctrinal background, but we don't say, let me show you where it is in the text. So state, place, prove is kind of that presentation pattern that's very uh, familiar. Now, for the third time, this is really the key that it's going to be on the midterm, isn't it? Complete the following. You owe no more to explanation than what is necessary to make the point clear. You owe no more to explanation than what's necessary to make the point clear. And you owe no less than what's necessary to what? Prove the point. You owe no more than what's necessary to make it clear. You owe no less than what's necessary to prove it. And that's where that pastoral prudence takes over again, isn't it? Is it clear? Okay, it's maybe clear, but have I proven it yet? Well, I may have to prove it then. But if I've proven it and it's clear, move on. And typically we take the easiest course rather than the most difficult course in that proof category. Let's pray before we uh, move forward here. Heavenly Father, we, on this day, do not know for certain who our next president will be. We remember that righteousness exalts a nation. We remember that those who turn their eyes to you are those who are led to their security. And so we as a people, Father, would continue to pray for your will to rule that those who are in authority over us would be those who rule with justice, with biblical righteousness. We pray, Father, that if there are those who are, by your will, ruling over us with whom we disagree, that nonetheless we would count the privileges of being a people who can elect their leaders. And even if we cannot elect our leaders, we are still the people of God who believe that you sit upon your throne and Rule over the affairs of men so that your will is done. There are those who in the next days will be very frustrated. May we be the people who, even if we would not see our way, nonetheless trust your way. Grant us to see eternally, Father, what you are doing. A plan beyond our own, a hand beyond our own, and a God who rules for the purposes of Jesus Christ. We pray, Father, knowing that sometimes the word is spread in times of persecution, better than it is in times of ease. 
We do not know what the day holds tomorrow, but we know that you know. And in that, we take great confidence. We ask, Father, for you to give us the faith that is necessary to be the citizens and the people of God that you require for Christ's glory. We make this prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to talk about illustration today. And if we could kind of return to our sermon skeleton here and think of the taxonomy of where we are. We have looked at the introductory material into the body of the sermon, the scripture intro, scripture reading, the introduction itself, proposition. And then as we begin thinking about main points, we recognize they had their own skeletal structure. There was explanation, illustration, application in this double helix form you now know very well. And the explanation we recognize had its own structure. Typically, if it was longer than a paragraph, it had subpoints. Now, you in your last assignment turned in subpoints and conclusions. And uh, as always is the case, by doing them, you learn far more about them. Here's what always happens when you turn in that subpoint and conclusion assignment. Uh, typically, for many of you, it's the first time you get check minuses. And the reason is, even though I said it three times in the last class period, that not just the statements of main points are parallel, but the answers to the questions are worded in parallel. Nonetheless, about 35% of you did not do that. You did not put your answers in parallel. Now, that's just fine. Remember, it doesn't affect your grade hardly at all. And Dr. Harris, when I did real poorly on an Old Testament exam when I was a student here, comforted me by saying, Brian, you know, long term, the only answers that you remember on tests are the ones that you missed. If you didn't do well on parallel subpoint statements, you know what? You probably won't do it again. <laughs> You're going to say, oh, yeah, three times I was told that the answers are to be parallel. Even in that quiz that I handed out to you that we didn't take, but I said some of the questions are on the quiz we will take after Lecture 14. Even on those quiz questions, it was reminding you the answers are in parallel. Now, why are we doing that? Why are we making such an emphasis and grading so hard on something so simple as subpoints, not only the statements, but the answers worded in parallel? It is because the subpoint statements have key terms in them. Remember those words that change? Everything's worded in parallel, but something changes. That's drawing the attention of the ear, and the explanation is going to be about the keyword changes. What is the illustration going to be about? The keyword changes. So if you didn't have subpoints worded in parallel, you don't have the tools to form the illustration. After all, the illustration is illustrating the point. So if the, if the subpoints are holding the, the main conceptual point and they don't have keywords, we just don't even know what the illustration is going to be about. So the necessity of subpoints worded in parallel statements is so that you will have the key terms. The ear is now paying, oh, that's what this is about. The ear is hurted by the keyword changes. So you automatically know that's what the illustration is going to be about. Your key terms of the subpoints are giving you the raw material that will be necessary to form the illustration. Now, if you think about illustrations, you must know, I've alerted you before, in the history of preaching, almost every component of exposition is debated at times. Remember, the Huguenots didn't like explanation. 
many in Reformed circles don't like illustration. Fair enough? I mean, we just know there are people who think this is, this is just kind of pandering to the ignorant that we have to use illustrations. There are some, for good theological reasons, who think we shouldn't do application. The sola spiritus people. It should be the spirit alone. You shouldn't be doing application. But I'm going to try in the first part of this lecture today, as we pretty much cover the material of lecture 13, and then move somewhat into lecture 14, try to give you some of the reasons why. Why do we do illustration? In fact, why in the history of preaching has great preaching always included illustration? We've just come out of um, preaching lectures here this uh, past 10 days or so. And I can remember when I was a student and we had academic lectures that came here. And I was invited to the president's residence after the academic lectures to kind of meet and talk to uh, the man who had lectured to us. And I can still remember him. He was Dutch. And so he sat in the breezeway smoking his cigar. <laughs> and as he kind of, you know, blew the smoke into the air and the circles, you know, kind of moved away, he actually was complaining. And he was talking about the state of preaching. And he said, you know, television has ruined us all. I will use illustrations, but how I hate it. Little tales for little minds. Now, being a student and very academically oriented, I kind of nodded my head. That is right. Isn't it a shame the way that television has ruined us all and that we have to use illustrations for all the people with little minds out there? Now, at that time, I was also pastoring a little church, a little church over in Illinois in the cornfields there. And um, to my horror now, I remember some of what I did. As I was preached, sometimes I would actually take my systematics notes into the pulpit with me, and I would preach right out of my class lecture notes and think I was giving them solid, good information, and it probably was solid, good information. But I can remember one particular time in which I was preaching out of Philippians 2. And you all know that the key phrasing there is where Christ emptied himself. And the word there is kenosis. And theologians throughout the centuries have made the point that when Christ emptied himself of heavenly glory, he still remained divine. And that word emptying does not mean giving away. It means putting away without in any way taking away the authority of Christ's glory. So I can remember kind of standing on the pulpit and banging away and saying to these farm and mine folk, Minor folk. The word is kenosis. Kenosis, the word is. It means that he is still God, even though he put aside his glory. I'm sure they said amen. A few weeks later, I had a missionary come. His name was Paul London. And Paul London uh, had been a missionary to Africa for many years before his wife's health brought him to New York City, where he still ministered to international Africans in the United States but he had a lot of African experience. And when he came and ministered to our church, you know what text he asked the congregation to turn to? Philippians 2. I thought, oh no, I just did this two weeks ago. They're going to be so bored because I already explained it to them. Now, as Paul London went through that kenosis passage, he said to the people, you know, the way I like to think about this is in this way. When... My wife and I, Carolyn, were, were in Africa. We ministered in a part of Africa that was very, very dry, almost a desert region. 
And people would dig wells, but they're not the kind of wells that you're thinking about, where you lower a bucket into the well and that sort of thing. Actually, what they do is they sink deep shafts into the ground. And the water actually condenses on the sidewalls and seeps in 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 very little amounts. And what they actually do is not put a bucket down there, but they send people down into the well to wipe the walls and sop up the floor with rags and squeeze the water into buckets. You've actually got to go down into the well. And the way that they do that is these well shafts are very narrow and they put slits on the sides so that a man actually walks down into the well to get the water. You know, one day in our village, there was a man who went down into the well, but he only got a little ways down and he fell. And he broke his leg at the bottom of the well. Now, somebody had to go down and get him. He was a big man, though. And nobody was able to go get him. Nobody wanted to go down and help him out until the chief came. The chief at that time was the largest and the strongest man in the tribe. And what he did was this. He actually took off his robe and his headdress and he put them aside. And then he went down, down into the well. And he picked up the other man and brought him back up. Then Paul London said, now, folks, I have a question for you. When the chief took off his headdress and his robe, did he stop being the chief? People said, no. He said, you know, that's what Jesus did. He took off his heavenly glory, but he did not stop being divine. Now, at the end of the service, I stood beside Paul London as the people left and they shook his hand and mine. And I can still remember them saying, why, Reverend London, that was the most wonderful sermon. Why, I never understood that passage until. (laughs) And I thought to myself, it's not just little tales for little minds. Even I understood it better. I understood it better. Something deeper than just clarification is going on. Illustrations rightly used do something fundamental of uniting the intellect with experience so that our very will is affected according to the word of God. And the reason that good preachers in all times have used illustration is not so that they will just have little tales for little minds, not just so they'll entertain or spoon food or spoon feed the ignorant. They know something more fundamental is going on, that when experience is hooked to the intellect, profound understanding occurs in a way that mere logical explanation does not encompass. As you think about illustrations, what I want you to do today as we move through Lecture 13 is not be concerned about all the details of what I'm going to say, but catch, catch the gist. And when we get to 14, Lecture 14, then I'll really push you on the details, okay? But for now, I want you just to think about why we illustrate. Why do we do this in the history of preaching and in our preaching today? First, before we go into the whys, why not? Because I want to kind of cut off at the pass what I recognize are legitimate objections. Why should we not illustrate? The first reason I do not think we should illustrate is to entertain. We do not illustrate just to entertain. Some time ago, I put on the board for you that chart of what um, speech communicators call suasibility or persuasion. Do you remember what happens when speakers at the beginning of their speech start with an anecdote, just a humorous little story? We know that interest goes up very rapidly. What happens to credibility? 
it goes down almost as rapidly, particularly if it is not apparent that the story or the anecdote related to the concept at hand. So, suasibility, persuasion falls if all we are doing is entertaining and actually people know that's all we're doing. So, the very thing we think we're accomplishing, that we're taking people along with us so that we'll be more persuasive, actually the opposite occurs if all we're doing is entertaining. And it's not just that our persuasion falls. It's that the effect of the preaching itself is damaged. If people begin to think, you know, good preaching is the preaching that entertains me, Think what shallow expectations we have created. If it's not entertaining, it's not good. If I don't find it funny, then it's not valuable. I mean, talk about miscommunicating what the Word of God is about. If the goal of our illustration is to entertain, we have seriously damaged ourselves and the Word of God and the people who listen to it. Now, a second reason that we should not illustrate is to spoon-feed the ignorant to spoon-feed the ignorant. That is, the condescending notion, they're just too dumb to understand. So I have to illustrate. Listen, people are not too dumb to understand. They're just as smart as we are. They haven't got our seminary lingo down, but they're just as smart as we are. And so to say, what I'm doing is not dumbing down. That's not why I'm illustrating. Something else needs to be going on. I'm not illustrating because they're too dumb to understand. By the way, neither am I illustrating because I am too dumb to do good explanation. Hear that? Sometimes you think, you know, I, I just can't explain this very well. My explanation is not logical or weighty enough, so I'll throw in an illustration because I just can't explain very well. You know, if you can't explain very well, the illustration is not going to help you. And the reason is for something I've mentioned to you before. The primary purpose of illustration is not to clarify. What is it? Do you remember? The primary purpose is to motivate. The primary purpose of illustration is not to clarify. Yeah, does it clarify? Sure, it clarifies some. But that's not its primary purpose. Otherwise, you'll think, oh, that was very clear. Therefore, I don't need to illustrate. No, it's actually the opposite. Once it's very clear, you still need illustration because the primary purpose of illustration is not to clarify. It is to motivate. Some of you have had teacher training. You know these different distinctions. When we do explanation, we are primarily dealing with the intellect, right? When I do explanation, I'm primarily dealing with information that you need, with the intellect to properly process information out of the text. Remember what my goal is, though. My goal is not just to inform the intellect. My goal is to transform the will, application. So I've got explanation. I'm moving toward application, which is to transform the will. Now, all of you in education training, what is between will and intellect? It is affect. It is affect. It is the combination of intellect and my experience with that which needs change. That affect is what illustration is dealing with. I'm trying to point toward what transformation is needed, but bring into experience that aspect of understanding that explanation has dealt with. So explanation deals with intellect. Application deals with the will. Illustration is trying to deal with affect. The motivation factors that bring this truth 
to that aspect of life that the will will be addressing. That, that takes us to thinking about why we actually do illustration. Why do we actually do this? The, the first reason, just on your list, and you could multiply these or even do them in different orders, but the reason I think we do illustrations is because of the way that we live, the way that we live and interact in our world. It's been said, not by me, but by many other people, we live in the age of visual literacy. We are in the age of visual literacy. We are habituated to picture thinking. If you thought of what that means, just, uh, just consider some of the following statistics. And obviously these can be debated in different terms, but you'll get the gist. The average adult parishioner, that is the average person that you will be talking to on a Sunday morning, will spend roughly 50 hours a year in church. Average adult parishioner will spend 50 hours a year in church. How many hours per year will they spend in front of a TV? Average adult, 2,000. 2,000 hours a year in front of the TV. Now, people will debate that because they're saying, well, that's just the time the TV is on in the home. It doesn't necessarily mean people are watching. It's almost visual wallpaper, isn't it, in many homes? It's just on all the time and is causing an habituation to picture thinking. It gets scarier when you think of young people, generations that are now coming up. The average high school graduate will have watched 15,000 hours of TV minimum. Minimum 15,000 hours of TV. He will have only spent 12,000 hours in school itself. So more, more hours watching TV than being in school. Now, by the time he graduates high school, you've only spent 1,000 hours in church. So 1,000 hours in church. Now, this is, you know, these are fairly faithful church people going. You're talking about regular churchgoers. 1,000 hours in church. Actually, 1,100 is what my notes here say. 1,100 hours in church, 12,000 hours in class, and over 15,000 hours watching TV. We'll have watched 350,000 commercials. We'll have watched 350,000 commercials. Here's the one that scares me the most. The average preschooler in the United States will have watched more TV before entering the first grade than he will listen to his father in his lifetime. The average preschooler will spend more time watching TV before first grade than he will spend time listening to his father in his lifetime. We are deeply affected by the pop culture around us. And even if we personally think we are not, there is no question the people to whom we speak are deeply and profoundly affected by the age in which we live. Now, then you might say, well, now, wait a second. Is all you're saying, because we are habituated to picture thinking, that we are just going to capitulate to our culture? Is that what you're talking about? That we're just going to entertain because uh, we're going to capitulate to the vices of the present culture. Well, even though we talk about the way we live, I want you to think about the way of giants in the past. If you think about those who have preached in previous generations, I will ultimately contend that the reason that we use illustrations is not just because of this age, but because of the way the mind functions in every age. The way the mind functions in every age. Age. Think of this. In the Middle Ages, 
there was a group of documents that would circulate among the monasteries. It was known as the Ars Predicandi, the art of preaching. It wasn't preparation and Dell by John Broadus. It wasn't Christ-centered preaching or biblical uh, preaching by Haddon Robbins. Well, it was the Ars Predicandi, the kind of the curriculum for preaching that circulated in the Middle Ages among the monasteries. Among the Ars Predicandi were the documents that were known as, listen to the term, they were known as the exempla. The, the documents that were called the exempla, what does that sound like to you? The examples. Guess what they were books of? They were books of illustrations. Not just White's 10,000 illustrations for preachers today that you can get over in the library. You know, not just uh, Barnhouse's illustrations that you can get in the library today. But as far back as the Middle Ages. Now think, in a pre-electronic media age, people who were preaching were still collecting illustrations. And still using them as fundamental to what preaching was in these pre-electronic ages. If you were to go to good preaching in any age... For instance, Jonathan Edwards. If I were to say to you, what sermon do you remember of Jonathan Edwards, what sermon would it be? Sinners in the hands of an angry God. And what is the portion of the sermon that you remember? You remember the spiders over the flame. Now, isn't that interesting that Jonathan Edwards was not on the radio, (laughs) he was not on TV, and yet he was using profound illustrations on the American frontier that we still remember to this day. If you weren't to look in, in the Middle Ages or you weren't to look at the American, uh, the early American Great Awakening time, but you were even to go all the way back to Chrysostom, the earliest preacher that we are aware of, golden tongue, golden mouth in some translations he was called, you will recognize he was powerful in his use of illustrations. There is something more fundamental than pop culture going on in the way that we understand. Remember again, intellect, Affect transform the will. There's something that has to hook the will to the intellect, and that typically in the history of preaching has been um, the use of illustration. I'm trying to think if you can think of others. Um, Spurgeon, did Spurgeon use illustrations? Sure he did. Wrote a whole book on the use of illustrations. Was he on the radio? No. Pre-electronic era as well. If you were to think of, of Moody or Billy Sunday, oh, here's one good one for you. You heard the lecture on this. Um, the Westminster Divines and the Directory for Public Worship. What did the Westminster Divines say should be included in our sermons? Illustrations that do what? Remember? Delight. You're saying it. Delight the heart of the hearer. Now, isn't that interesting? Even the Westminster Divines, pre-electronic era, pre-TV, all of that before the age that's habituated to picture thinking, are still talking about the use of illustration. And the reason for that is, it's just an old, old, old preacher's rubric that the goal of the preacher is to turn the ear into the eye. Hear that? To turn the ear into the eye. I want to visualize what you're talking about. Now, it's really more than that. It's I want to experience what you're talking about. And the best preachers have always recognized that if I've only spoken and given you head knowledge, heart knowledge is still a long way away. I want you to experience what I'm talking about as part of effective preaching. The reason for this is being discerned in more recent decades by the way that we learn 
by the way that we learn. I think most of you who've been in teacher training or education in recent years recognize there is a revolution that is occurring in this country, throughout the Western world, in understanding how we learn and incorporate information. Up until the 20th century, the Cartesian model ruled. I think, therefore what? I am. Cogito ergo sum. I think. The intellect is the ground of knowing. I think, therefore I am. But then you had the French philosophers, particularly people like Merleau-Ponty, saying, that's wrong. In fact, it's backwards. I am, therefore I think. In fact, they said, I can. I can be involved. I can experience something. I can go through something. And as a result of going through it, I can actually think about it. In fact, if I haven't gone through it, I can't really think about it yet. Now, you, you, you recognize this is dangerous philosophy. Talk about subjectivism. If I don't go through it, it's not real. Hear the damage of that? And yet it is ruling much of the way in which education is going these days. Now, we should recognize the danger of this kind of radical subjectivism. If I don't experience it, it's not real. And at the same time, the power of saying, but when I experience it, don't I understand more? Now, you all know these different things. Dale's cone of experience. This came out of a study at the Michigan State University. You know these things, don't you? We will understand, excuse me, we will retain. This is that learning pyramid or Dale's cone. We will retain 10% of what we read, 20% of what we hear, 30% of what we see, 60% of what we do. Now, would that be true, do you think? If you read something and have not had any other action with it, do you retain much of it? You know, instinctively we say, well, at least it's not as powerful as if I read it and experienced it. Now, in, in, in a weird way that I'm recognizing as I'm pushing the limits here a little bit, it's even what happened in your last assignment. Remember, I, I said to you three times, answers of subpoints need to be in parallel statements. Gave you a quiz that even had that answer on it. But when you turned in your papers, 35% of you did not put your subpoint answers in parallel statements. Now, there's, there's no fault to you. It actually is confirming this. Now that you've done it, interacted with it, those words really will sink in. They'll mean a lot more. In fact, you kind of know, I didn't even know what he was saying when he said, word your answers in parallel. I mean, I heard the words, but I didn't really know what it meant. But now having done it, having interacted with it, you know a whole lot more of what it means. I want to tell you how it profoundly has affected your education experience and mine. I think mine was probably the first generation in public schooling that decided it would go on field trips. Did you go on field trips in your education? Did your grandparents go on field trips in their education? No. All this stuff from Michigan State University, Dale's kind of experience, the philosophers of the French schools coming to the United States were saying, you know what? Those kids have to interact with it. Don't just tell them about firemen. Take them to a fire station. Don't just tell them how bread is baked. Take them to a bakery. And you know what? Lots of you remember those field trips a lot more than you remember. I mean, just instinctively, you know that interaction somehow drives knowledge deep. You also know, because of the generation that you're in, that people learn differently, don't you? 
It's the reason we're a little suspect of the notion that everybody needs to learn by experience. Granted, the late night TV will tell you, come to our truck driving school and you'll get hands-on experience. At the same time, you're wondering, is that the only way people learn? But intuitively, you know, it's the only way some people learn. So we're going to be talking to all kinds of people. And one of the wonderful things that's happened generationally through some educational transfers is almost everyone has become more understanding of different learning styles. We recognize some of us learn very easily just linear thinkers. Just read it and I got it. But we understand a lot more about each other. Some people have to have some hands-on. Or even say it to me rather than read it to me. Or let me hear you say it rather than have me read it. Or else, let me do an exercise, and then I'll understand it more than just have it. What's preaching trying to do? Reach all of these different people. All of these, not just some of them. Reach all of these different people and use the different tools that the history of preaching provides. It really is the way of giants of the past and the way we learn today. Number four, it's the way we motivate. It is the way even we motivate. If my child says to me something like, Dad... Why, why should I save money? I'll say, now listen, sometime you're going to want to get a Christmas present for your mom. And now what am I starting to do? I'm not going into an economics lesson on the nature of savings and, you know, interest, income, accrual. And so, what am I doing? I'm telling a story. I'm trying to motivate my child by saying, what will be the implications of your doing or not doing something? I explain a principle by saying, here's an experience you will have as a consequence of involving or not involving that principle in your life. I thought of this in terms of just how we, how we feel the weight of illustration by hearing uh, some good ones. Here in a sermon that was underscoring the importance of every child of God having a role in God's kingdom. Hear the principle? Every child of God has a role in God's kingdom. Now, I can just kind of principally state that, right? No matter who you are, you have a role. No matter if you think you're insignificant, just a child, you have a role in God's kingdom. But I want you to think of this illustration not only in terms of what it communicates of knowledge, but what it does to the will at the same time. Okay, so think of it as it's not just clarification, but motivation, and think of what the preacher may be doing. Here again is it saying the importance of every child in the kingdom, uh, the role of every child in God's kingdom. Rising out of the swamps just north of Savannah, Georgia, is an historic church named Jerusalem. Salzburg Lutherans built this church in the 18th century after being expelled from their Catholic homeland. General Ogathorpe offered free land to these Lutherans who would assume the role of screening Savannah from hostile Indians all around. The Salzburgers from Austria brought their faith to this newfound land and named their town New Ebenezer. The name harkened back to biblical images more solid. Here I raise my Ebenezer means what? Doug? Stone of my help. So they're raising this town out of swamps, and what do they call their town? Rock. <laughs> Rock of my help here in this swamp that they need. The name harkened back to biblical images more solid than the bogs surrounding the town. The dangers of the land 
and the diseases of the swamp soon decimated these early Lutheran settlers. But no trial could deter them from setting up their community of faith. The few able-bodied men continued to climb scaffolds to hoist bricks up to forming the massive walls of their church. Women molded and baked sandy clay. Children carried the materials, both to the women on the ground and the men on the scaffolds. And to this day, if you go to New Ebenezer, you will see embedded in the brick of the church the fingerprints of children. When you picture in your mind those little children transporting bricks to their sick or dying parents, your heart may still break. But I imagine those children would rather your heart soar. For the print of each child is a poignant reminder that God can even use little ones for His work as they endure in His purposes. Hear what the preacher's wanting to do? Could he just say, kids have a role in the kingdom? But he's not just wanting you to feel the information. He's wanting you to feel the impact of it on experience so that heart and mind and body and all aspects of us are involved as well. Do you get a little feel of that? The role of illustration is not just to clarify. It is supremely to motivate, to bring intellect to the will by dealing with affect. It is the way that we motivate. Beyond the way we motivate, it is the way that Scripture teaches. Does the Bible use illustrations? A lot of it depends on how you define an illustration, right? But if you said, are there accounts of people experiencing the truths of God? Then we would say, yes. Actually, how much of the Bible is historical narrative? Do you know? Estimates vary on this, but round figures. How much of the Bible is historical narrative? About 75%. Now, that, that's an amazing teaching understanding. If we say, you know, the stories just don't have a place in teaching God's people. Say, no, oh, wait a second. 75%. Is that really just little tales for little minds? 75%. It's not uh, just even the, com- the composition of the Old Testament we recognize or the New, but even the way, if I were to say to you, how does redemptive history unfold? Granted, there's lots of law and proposition, but if I said, how does redemptive history unfold? We typically think the garden and the flood And Jacob's ladder, the patriarchs. We think of the kingship of David and the following kings. We think of Christ on the cross. We think of these major images that are signaling the epochs of biblical history, but also the flow of biblical truth. It could have just been a systematics. You ever get frustrated with God? (laughs) Why isn't it just a systematics book, God? I mean, that would have been so much better. Why didn't you just put it down as a book of doctrine? Why do you think that is? Because of the genius of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit recognizes that if it had just been propositional statements, then those propositions would change with the experience of subsequent people. We will always interpret propositions out of our experience. So what is the Bible doing? It's giving propositions, but it's giving the experience of God's people in that proposition. 
so that the experience is explaining the proposition even as the proposition is explaining the experience. They lock each other down. It becomes transcendent truth because it's not governed by my experience of the proposition. It is governed by my seeing the experience of God's people to live it through their experience. Now I know what the proposition means. When God says, you shall have no other gods before me, how do I know what that means? I see the people of Israel over and over again turning to other gods and the consequence of that. I understand the proposition by living through, in the described detail, the experience of the people of Israel. The experience locks down the meaning of the proposition, further explains it, motivates us to do what the proposition says. The proposition is absolutely necessary. That's where the modern philosophy is wrong. It says if I don't experience it, it's not true. The Bible says it is true, and here's the experience of God's people who show you and prove that truth. Therefore, there is no temptation taking you but such as is common. You now know this truth because of the experience of people like you. When we begin to see what the Bible is doing, I'll tell you, the more I studied kind of modern hermeneutics, the more I thought, God is really, really smart in the way that he put together the Bible. I mean, we would have, on our own, we would have just put together a book of doctrine, a systematics theology book, and not recognized that would actually have lost people over time. Having the story with the proposition is what actually locks down meaning. It is, of course, the way that Jesus speaks. I put this little thing up on the board earlier, right? Um, the man... Uh, in the bottom, kind of echoing a lot of our concerns about preaching. In my opinion, said this person listening to this man preaching on the mount, in my opinion, he needs to use fewer parables and more scripture. <laughs> ever hear that complaint? Sure. Is it ever valid? Sure. I, I think there's almost an evangelical instinct that if it's all story, what people call skyscraper sermons, Story on a 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 story, you know, skyscraper sermons. We all kind of object because what we feel is going on is entertainment rather than preaching. You just want to keep me engaged, so you just keep telling me stories. And it's more your concern for how you're doing as a public speaker than it is for communicating the truth of God. At the same time, we object to arrogance that says, I will never connect with you. I will never connect this biblical information with your life. We, we have to earth heaven at times. That's really the goal of the preacher always, isn't it? To bring heaven and earth together. And one of the things that we're doing in illustrations is we're taking the experience that people have and we're saying how it relates. It says in Mark 4, you read this passage in your readings, in Mark 4, without a parable, Jesus did not say anything to them. Now, that's, that's a remarkable pun, if you think about it both ways. It could just mean, without a parable, he didn't say anything else. So we're keeping proposition linked to parable. But in educational theory, it has another meaning. Without a parable, nothing was communicated. It didn't come across. Now, did he ever use parables to keep things from coming across? You remember that happened too, right? Without a parable, he didn't say anything to them. But when they were in private, he then explained it. Which in my mind is again biblical genius coming through. If it is just story without proposition, 
it also does not have meaning. If it is just proposition without story, it does not have transcendent meaning. What makes it have meaning is proposition that is transcendent and experience that links that to our world so that transcendent truth comes into our world, has meaning for us as the scriptures intended. One of the remarkable places that this is said uh, is in the Gospel of John and then in the, um, in the epistle as well. Now, here's what I'm going to try to move you to think about before we move into lecture 14. What Merleau-Ponty the various French philosophers and most teacher education in this country in recent years has said is that the way in which stories work, they have power to engage people, but the way they work is what was with, what, with what is called lived body detail. It's as though I lived through the experience again in my body. That's what makes the affect occur. My mind, the abstract propositions, are now lived through as though my body were in the experience of those propositions. Now, great abstract truth, maybe. Listen to how John, the apostle, uses it. This is what he says in John 1, 14 and 18. The glory of God, who cannot be seen. Okay, hear abstraction? The glory of God, who cannot be seen, was revealed in the Son, who made known, that is, aorist, middle indicative of exegeomai, which A.T. Robertson, some of you mean, read to mean, to bring out in narrative. The Son made known the glory of the Father by bringing it out in narrative. It's an interesting concept. How does he do that? How does he bring it out in narrative? By the way he lived among us. This is how John says it then in his epistle. Now think again of lived body detail. That which was from the beginning, the Son removed from us, which we have now heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled of the word of life. For the life was manifested, and we have seen it, and bear witness, and show unto you that eternal life which was with the Father, and manifested unto us. That which we have seen and heard, we declare unto you, so that you may have fellowship with us, because our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Now, listen to what the apostle is doing. There is the glory of the Father which is revealed in the Son. We know that glory of the Father because the Son lived among us in narratives in our lives. And now, the way that you're going to know it is we're going to communicate to you what we have seen and heard and handled. Do you hear live body detail? And what we have seen and heard and handled is the glory of the Son which is of the Father. And we've had fellowship with it. And the way in which you're going to have fellowship with it is what? By us telling you what we have seen and heard and handled. The lived body detail communicated is what is ultimately going to communicate the abstract to our experience. 
famous study done in the 1970s by a pair of researchers named Steinecker and Bell. You don't have to know this. It's just kind of an incidental thing. They began to say this when they recognized the power of experience. They said, well, now how can we make learning occur when everybody cannot have the same experience? They can't all go on field trips to the same place. So how are we going to... And they began to test something. They said, if I won't just have someone go through an experience, but I will fully describe an experience. Now, hear the language. Fully describe an experience. How much of the experience will be known by them? You know what they discovered? There was no testable difference. No testable difference between what people actually experienced and an experience that was communicated to them as long as the experience was fully described. Now, testable difference is an interesting qualification. Because I still say, probably, if you actually go through a scuba dive, it's a little different than somebody describing it to you fully. But in terms of a testable difference, they said there is no testable difference between an experience that is lived through and one that is fully described. Now think of what John is saying. That which we have seen and heard and handled, we tell you about so that you will know the glory of the Father revealed in the Son. Lived body detail. Thanks for listening to this Worldwide Classroom Lecture from Covenant Theological Seminary. Looking for more resources? Access more than 1,000 downloadable articles, sermons, and more at resourcesforlifeonline.com. Search resources by keyword, author, or Bible reference. Grace-focused, Christ-centered resources, free to you. resourcesforlifeonline.com.